The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I want to thank everybody for coming this morning, especially anybody who's uh, new to the center. Big welcome to you. Kathy's our program host, and I think there's another, Lisa, are you the other program host? So check in if you have any questions about the center. Uh, usually at the end of the month, I just mention how the center operates because we don't often, on purpose, talk about this more pragmatic uh functional part of the center, like how do we pay for the office staff, our great office team, associate director Shelley Graff, and the office manager Gabe Keller-Flores, and uh, the building, and we're in the middle of a big $300,000 renovation of our retreat property. Corey Clementson over here is our construction manager, looking for volunteers to get out there and help him in this huge endeavor of transforming this pole barn that was built by an Amish family about 30 years ago, 25 years ago, or maybe 35 years ago, um, to build Amish furniture. And now it's in our hands, this 46-acre property. And uh, we'll be having some community meetings later this fall and show you a slideshow. Ari's helping us produce a, a video about what's going on out there so the community can get involved. And all of this happens through this easy, this is the most important point, this easy healing and hopefully joyful, liberating circle of giving and receiving. And if it's starting to feel tight that I'm talking about this, then that just means we have practice to do because you know, there's no pressure and there's no right or wrong way. It's really about finding happiness in this very ordinary thing called my way of relating to Common Ground Meditation Center. What would be a way to relate that would make you happy? How can I participate, receive in a way that makes me happy? How can I contribute in a way that makes me happy? And this is something that nobody can tell you how to do it, but we do ask you to reflect on how you can become more happy in your relationship to Common Ground. And, you know, I know it sounds like a ploy, but it's really, and, and you know, we have to do this in our intimate relationships, and those of you with kids have to do it with your children. How can I have an adult child or a young child, and that work I do, being with, you know, raising my five-year-old, for example, how can that be a joy instead of this, you know, used to be a 20-year burden, now it's whatever, 30-year burden... <laughs> <laughs> I'm told. You know, how can that not be a burden? Because otherwise, this is what we do. We turn everything into a burden. Everything. Being a citizen becomes a burden. Being an activist becomes a burden. Being a human being becomes a burden. Having to take care of my body is a burden. Having to have friends is a burden. I've got to listen to them. i gotta, <laughs> I got to care about them, right? And it's like, that's a misunderstanding of compassion and generosity. These are enlivening emotions. They're not deadening emotions. And when generosity and compassion feel deadening, it just means we're misunderstanding the experience. We haven't actually gotten interested. Like, how can it become an enlivening relationship? So common ground, for most of us, it's a relatively 
simple, neutral relationship to begin to experiment with. How can my relationship with my local Buddhist meditation center be a relationship that brings joy and lightness and ease into my life instead of more guilt or more whatever it might bring, right? And that's why we don't talk about it much and don't give too many examples. I mean, we're happy to answer questions. You can go online. There is a sheet of paper that kind of talks a little bit about how you can give um, next to the donation bowls or contact the office. But it's really for everyone to figure out like what actually makes you happy. And, you know, everyone's situation is different, so you just have to find your own way. And uh, in terms of our Dharma teachings, uh, we're right in the middle of a series of talks that I'm giving, and I think in next month, uh, Shelley Graff will give one of the talks. Patrice will be teaching next Sunday. I don't know if you're going to come up with a talk on the same subject, but we're looking at how we look at our thoughts, how we relate to our thoughts, because it's such a central part of meditation practice and just being a human being is having a healthy relationship with the thinking mind. And it's probably safe to say that most of our suffering comes from having an unhealthy or diluted relationship with our thoughts. And what by diluted we mean it's not judgmental, it just means that the mind is it's taking thoughts to be more than what they are. But we don't want to dismiss thoughts because thinking obviously is a very powerful, useful capacity of the mind, right? To be able to think, to be able to abstract, to be able to connect with others through the stories and words and concepts that we can construct with our thinking minds. We need a thinking mind. But it's sort of, we've uh, lost our way, to say the least, around thinking. And the thinking mind tends to dominate the mind in the sense that the mind constructs mental constructions, thoughts, concepts, and then we forget that they're just that, that that it's just a thought. And often the confusion arises because a lot of the thoughts, memories, ideas about the future, ideas about other people, things we like, things we don't like, they come with an emotional charge. And that's what makes thinking so seductive. You know, thoughts that don't have any emotional charge tend to be pretty easy to maintain balance. Oh yeah, that's just that thought. But when there's a crunch in the heart, uh, excitement in the heart, some juicy emotional feeling that's connected with some concept, some thought, some idea, then it seems, all of a sudden, it seems very personal and deserving of a personal response, a personal reaction. And then in a sense, we're off to the races where one thought, one feeling evokes the next thought and feeling, the next thought and feeling. And it can go on and on until the mind is exhausted, tied up into knots. And the worst thing is that the mind has cut a groove so that in the future it's easier to think in the same way. And if we've done that, day after day, for weeks, months, years at a time, then it's very hard to break those psychological, neurological grooves in the mind, to think in certain ways, to feel in certain ways, to react in certain ways. We literally become entrapped or oppressed by the habits 
the wired habits, the conditioned habits of the thinking mind. And we can sense that in other people, like if we hang around somebody, maybe one of your friends or somebody in your family, less easy to see in our own minds, easier to see in other people's minds. And we can really get a sense of somebody suffering quite a bit because of that entrapment being caught in their own cycles, patterns of thinking, patterns of constructing the world that they then have to live inside of through their own thinking patterns that started as an innocent thought with a charge and then through the sort of feedback mechanism, the way it works, where because we're feeling something, we feel like we got to think it again. It's hard to just have a feeling and just have that feeling, just be aware, intimate with that feeling. It feels so much more appropriate because I'm feeling excited, because I'm feeling sad, because I'm feeling whatever we're feeling, to have another thought. And then that thought triggers the next emotional charge, the next feeling. And the feeling, the next round of thinking, and the next round of thinking, the next charge, and that is this. It's not like anybody is doing this. It's just a natural pattern or a natural process. But we need to illuminate it Otherwise, we're going to be trapped by it. It's going to take over. And that's why so much of what our life is is really defined by being lost in these kind of patterns. So I mentioned last week that I wanted to start a series of talks on how the Buddha suggests we work with distracting thoughts. And the first step, it's always this chicken and egg thing, like we need enough balance, enough stability of present moment awareness to be able to to discern that I'm in danger, (laughs) right? I've got a thinking mind, so I'm in danger. I need, like, there's nothing inherently dangerous about a thinking mind unless the mind, the wisdom, isn't sufficient. It's like like anything, you know, you don't give a three-year-old a high-powered, you know, tool, you know, like a Sawzall. I don't know if you know what those are. (laughs) Some of you do. Right? It's like this, I've never used one myself, but I'm impressed. You know, it's just like this motor that's sort of the big, as big as like an eggplant. And then it's got a blade that goes back and forth, right? And so you can just saw through pretty much anything with it. You know, you wouldn't give a young person, but it's really an impressive tool if you need to sort of cut through something fast, right? And it's the same thing with the thinking mind. You know, you, we should have sort of... Uh, an owner's manual and, you know, require training to have a thinking mind because otherwise we end up with a world like this, <laughs> right? Where the thinking mind is doing its thing and it's like from within everybody's bubble, we always feel like whatever we're thinking and how we're acting on our thinking, it always seems rational or appropriate. But from the outside, it's like, oh my God, you're crazy, you know? <laughs> and you're setting emotion real suffering. But it doesn't look like that from the inside when we're the one thinking those thoughts because that's how it is within our own thinking processes. There's an inner integrity because we've defined the thinking rather has defined the bubble. So the thinking makes sense within the bubble. And that's why we get racism and sexism and nationalism And all the different isms, you know, all the different bubbles that the mind constructs 
because we're all feeling a little afraid or a lot afraid. We're all looking for ground. We never really find the ground, the safety we want. We presume it's out there, so we think harder, right? But it's not actually out there. Real peace, freedom, real love comes with making peace with vulnerability and uncertainty, with exposure, not pretending, not believing the bubbles, basically. So the the first step, as the Buddha outlines in this sutta, in the middle-length discourses, number 19, if any of you want to look it up, it's actually relatively easy if you do want to look it up. MN stands for the Maja Makaya Nikaya, uh, which is the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. So if you put MN19, you should come up close to the top. If you Google that, MN19, capital M, capital N, 19. You'll get this discourse, and it's generally translated as two kinds of thoughts. And the Buddha says, um, you know, before I had my deep insight, watching my mind, being pushed around by my mind, having my own bubbles and getting lost in them, suffering on and on, just like the rest of us, you know, it occurred to me, perhaps I should train my mind to divide my thinking into two categories, right? One category thinking that's being driven or dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion, and the other category, thoughts, mental activity, being governed by non-greed, generosity, letting go, renunciation, non-aversion, kindness, compassion, and non-delusion, right? Clarity, non-distraction, right? So that takes, that's a chicken and egg, like, well, you know, if I had enough wherewithal to notice that, maybe I wouldn't have a problem to begin with. But it is the first step. We have to stabilize present moment awareness just to be aware, just to be able to discern whether the thoughts right now, as they're playing themselves out, are skillful or unskillful. In a tragic way, there's not really much hope for us human beings unless we can stabilize present moment awareness enough to make that discernment. In a way, in Buddhism, we say you don't even become a fully human being or a moral being is another way, like a a human being that understands the difference between good and bad, unless you can observe your thoughts in terms of whether the thinking that's happening right now in my mind or in my heart is helpful or not helpful. And a lot of, the interesting thing is a lot of the day we're just not that interested. We're so absorbed in our thoughts and the content of our thoughts, it doesn't occur to us that what my mind is doing, what my mind is thinking might actually be setting emotion, suffering for myself and others. That's what we mean by unskillful. And skillful means our thinking are supportive of healing and ease. They're skillful, right? They lead to release, not to stress, not to suffering. And I'll just read a little bit from the sutta, this discourse from the Buddha. And as I remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking imbued with greed, thinking imbued with ill will, thinking imbued with delusion arose in me, 
I discerned that, right? This, oh, thinking imbued with greed has arisen in me, or thinking related to ill will, hatred has arisen in me, or distractedness, denial has arisen in me, and that leads to my own affliction, or the affliction of others, or the affliction of both. It obstructs discernment, promotes vexation or agitation, does not lead to the release of the heart. This is an insight to observe our thinking, our heart, the activity in the heart, and to see that it leads to our own suffering and the suffering of others is an insight. right? Because when the mind, when wisdom sees that our thinking is unskillful, something naturally happens. You don't have to do it. The heart starts to let go. No mind or heart in the light of awareness engages in activity that is self-destructive. We do it when the mind is unaware or deluded or misperceiving the mental activity, thinking that it's skillful. I mean, how many times have we been fuming about our partners or somebody, you know, angry at somebody, and it just felt on the surface it's kind of juicy, it feels appropriate to want revenge, to want them to suffer, to want, you know, God to smote them. (laughs) You know, that sort of justice of the universe. Like, when is karma going to catch up with this person? And it just, on the surface, it feels appropriate to be thinking in that way. And then when we relax a little, get curious, observe that thinking and that feeling for what it is, we see that, as the Buddha says, you know, when we're involved with anger, it's like grabbing uh, a ball, like a heavy rock, smeared with poop to throw at somebody, you know. Or... Even worse, you know, a rock that's red hot, that's been in a fire for a long time, and we really want to hurt somebody, we think like they deserve this, I'm the force of karma giving them their just desserts. But of course, we're the one who gets harmed first and foremost, because we've picked up that stone. But we don't see that because we're so entranced with the surface, the juiciness. The Buddha calls anger murderously sweet, right? Because that's that surface juiciness. Same with lust and greed. On the surface, wanting this to happen, wanting some kind of future for ourselves, it just seems so worthy of all that obsessive thinking so that we never notice how agitating it is to be hating the present moment as it exists right now because we want it to be you know, the way we imagine it would be perfect for us. And we end up hating the present moment, getting tight, because it's not the imagined perfect life that I want for myself. And of course, the Buddhist mentions this. He says, so as I notice that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. As I notice that it leads to the affliction of others, that it obstructs discernment, promotes agitation, does not lead to the release of the heart, it subsided. That's what I mean. It's an insight to see that some mental activity is unskillful is an insight. Meaning, if you're really seeing that in a non-judging way, you'll feel and see the releasing of your heart. The heart will put it down. 
And this is really a subtle but important point because when we catch ourselves doing something unskillful, we immediately want to jump in as the parent and say, stop that, bad boy, or something like that. But that's not the move. The Dharma move is this compassionate understanding. Oh, honey, this is not helping. This is counterproductive. Notice how tight this is. Right? That's it. That's the discernment. And it's just that compassionate, intimate connection with the unskillfulness that leads to a natural letting go. You don't let go. I don't let go. The heart or the mind lets go when it connects with the unskillfulness of the activity. And you really want to see this in real time. Like you see how tenaciously the mind holds to doing something unskillful, you know, like lusting after something or fuming about something. But when the mind sees directly in real time how heavy or how tight, how contracted that fuming is, then letting go will start to happen. So it's a letting go, we say in Buddhism, is a natural or even impersonal process. We take judgment out of it, like, why aren't, why aren't I letting go of this? I've been obsessing about this for weeks. Why don't I let go of this? Well, the, Buddhist, the, the answer from the Buddhist point of view is you haven't felt clearly, directly how unskillful it is. So any addictive pattern you're caught in, you want to let go? You have to really get intimate with the destructiveness of the behavior, of the mental activity. When you get really close, honest, and not judging, letting go will happen. So if letting go hasn't happened, it's either because it's not unskillful or you haven't gotten intimate with the unskillfulness, with the actual ouch of doing it. When you get there with the ouch, letting go happens. When you realize you're holding a red-hot pan, you don't have to think, should I let go? You just let go. And it's just the same on this cognitive mental level. When you see that some mental activity, emotional activity, is really self-destructive, causing harm to others, letting go happens. But it takes some time because these patterns, it, like, what does that take? It takes a courageousness to feel what it feels like to have the mental activity we already have. We're so invested in not feeling what it feels like to have the mental activity that we have. But it's, it just makes so much sense. I mean, it's really about integrity. Like, if I am going to be thinking a certain way or emoting a certain way, it makes sense that I should be willing to feel, to sense what that sets in motion, what I'm thinking and feeling, emoting in a particular way. So, so much of our practice is taking responsibility for the activity of the mind and body, but not taking responsibility like, I'm going to get in there and clean up. It's more like, I'm going to get in there and feel what's going on, see what's going on. I'm going to get in there and be intimate, and that will change everything. And another way of saying that is like, I'm going to get in there and shine a light, turn a light on. What is the mind, what is the heart doing? Is it helpful? 
Because we're, you know, just as an animal, we have this profound external orientation. We see the world through our eyes, our ears, through our touch, and we're surprisingly oblivious to this internal activity we call the mind and heart. We just are too busy focusing on what's external to notice the activity of the mind and heart. So mindfulness practice, Buddhist awareness practice, is mostly about developing the psychological tools to have a stable, continuous, clear, and kind awareness of the mind, of the heart. Right? Mind and heart, the same thing, this sort of internal activity of thinking, emotion, feeling, sense. Oh yeah, this is how it is. This is what the mind is doing. This is what the mind is thinking. And then the next follow-up question is always, is it helpful or is it skillful? What is this setting in motion? Is this what I want? Are these the kind of seeds I want to be planting? Is this the kind of person I want to become with these sort of seeds being planted? Planting seeds of irritation, planting seeds of critical thinking or judgmental thinking planting seeds of lust or desire, or if only, then I'll be happy. Is this what I want to set in motion? Is it helpful for me and for others? And the Buddha in this, you know, I'm, I read from the Dhammapada last Sunday about how we construct the, the world with our thinking minds, you know. And here he says it in another kind of fashion, Whatever a practitioner keeps pursuing with their thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of one's awareness. If a practitioner keeps pursuing thinking imbued with greed, abandoning thinking imbued with generosity and letting go, one's mind is bent by that thinking imbued with greed. If a practitioner keeps pursuing thinking imbued with ill will, aversion, fear, hate, Abandoning thinking imbued with kindness and compassion, one's mind is bent by that thinking imbued with ill will. If a practitioner keeps thinking imbued with harmfulness, abandoning thinking imbued with harmlessness, one's mind is bent by that thinking imbued with harmfulness. Right? So we become how we think. And then he says we have no choice he gives a simile of a cow herder, right, which is sort of a big deal at the time, walking on one of those narrow paths through the rice paddies. And he's got, you know, whatever, 30 cows. And the cows want to get in the rice paddies because, you know, nice fresh sprouts of rice to chew on. But, of course, the farmers would not like the cows being in the rice paddies. So he's constantly on top of the cows, keeping them on the path, getting them to the field where they can eat. That's like it having a mind with a lot of greed, a lot of hate, a lot of delusion, is we have to like be so vigilant because just in any moment our mind can act out. It's, but this is the hard way, but the hard way is the easy way. Like not taking responsibility for our mind, it's so much harder to fix our life once we've already made several mistakes, said things we shouldn't have said, done things we shouldn't have done. You know, a lot of people in the community, Patrice among them, 
uh, teach in the prisons in the greater metro area, Minnesota area. And they know, you know, talking to these folks over all of these many years of running the groups, the meditation groups in the prisons, how they're not that different than us. It's just that one, you know, moment of the mind being caught up in greed, hate, delusion, acting on it in a really unskillful way and getting caught, basically. And we're not, any of us, that far away from those kinds of mistakes. So we have to be really vigilant, but being vigilant is better than pretending that it's not important what the mind is doing, how the mind is thinking. And then the Buddha says the other way, like you can create positive habits. Instead of habits of greed, we can cultivate, isn't it possible to cultivate a mind that is content? We have to, like right now, I could pay attention to how, like I I like this black shirt that I'm wearing. Like it would be nice to have three of them. (laughs) You know? Or like different colors of the same shirt. like, Or whatever we might... So I could be cultivating thoughts of greed, how if only then I would be even more happy, or I could be cultivating thoughts of contentment. Like, I'm really content, I'm so happy that I have this shirt. You know, it feels nice on my body, it's warm but not heavy. And really tuning into the gratitude, to the contentment of what I have. Right? I had a nice breakfast. I could be thinking about what I could eat for lunch, but I could also be noticing like the breakfast is still there and I feel the sort of nice after feeling of having having had a healthy breakfast. Oh yeah, it does. It actually feels good. You know, I feel the green tea. Maybe you notice it too. <laughs> ah, green tea, that amazing drug. So it's like we can learn to be appreciative and content And then that becomes the habit of the mind. And same thing, so instead of ill will, we can have a friendly, tender, gentle, kindly, compassionate attitude, right? We can notice like a feeling of friendliness with the people in the room as opposed to noticing the one person who for whatever reason is irritating us or scaring us, whatever it is. Right? It matters what we pay attention to. It's like the news. What do we look like uh, look at when we look at the news? The things that irritate us. That's what I look at. Right? I notice more and more, even the New York Times now has like these little I don't know if anybody ever reads. I, I have to be admit, I don't know if I've ever clicked. I I read the New York Times every day. And there's something now, I don't even know what it's called, but it's like now for some good news or something like that. Maybe some of you know that that little feature that they have. Huh? (laughs) But I don't know if I've ever clicked on it. So it's just says something about our minds. But why not? Why not cultivate a sense of appreciation, a sense of kindness, a sense of friendliness? Why does it always feel better to cultivate ill will, fear, uh, self-righteousness, anger? We feel more alive because we feel contracted and we're in this neurotic place where we have linked feeling tight with feeling real and feeling open with not feeling real. 
like, oh, I can't be real because I don't, I, I need to locate myself in some anger before I feel real, or I need to locate myself in some greed before I feel real. So the Buddha says that if you cultivate these wholesome qualities, make them the habit, then he gives us different simile. He says it's like after the rice has been harvard, uh, harvard, harvested and uh, the farmers want the cows to be in the fields eating what remains and pooping and fertilizing the fields so the cow herder can just sit under a shade tree and all the cow herder needs to know is the cows are there the Buddha says in this discourse. That's enough. It doesn't have to be you know, hitting them, keeping them on the narrow path. So we don't have to be neurotically controlling the mind when we have wholesome habits because we have more and more sense. Like the habits of my mind can be trusted because the habits are kindness and friendliness and contentment and generosity and not harming. Right? And seeing clearly, connecting, being intimate, not being deluded or distracted or in denial. Well, then we don't have to be so working so hard to control the mind. But when our mind is beastly with greed, anger, and delusion, then we need to be that vigilant practitioner. Like, this is where, and this is how it is for all of us initially, the hard way is the easy way. Because to neglect, to be negligent, means we're going to end up in prison or end up with nobody wanting to be around us or whatever, right? Sorry and feeling remorseful for whatever we said or did that we realized later, oh, I shouldn't have said or did that. And so next week, and I'm going to ask uh, Gabe Keller-Flores, our office manager, to p- put this discourse and then an article about this other discourse from the Middle Link uh, Talks of the Buddha, where the Buddha talks about five ways of working with distracting thoughts. And the next two weeks I'll go through, and feel free to do that next week if you want, Patrice, um, the Buddhist instructions on working with distracting thoughts. And you can read the article yourself. So if you're not getting the weekly email um, from the center, you can sign up for that online. There's also a sheet of paper under the bulletin board where you can fill it out and leave it on the desk. And then you hear, we only send one email a week and it just reminds people what's coming up and any last minute changes in the schedule. And we also that way can get information like some readings that can be complements to uh, what we're talking about during these weekly practice groups. Yeah, Tom? Yeah, it's uh, number 20. So it's right after this two sorts of thinking, number 19 and number 20 in the middle link discourses. So if you did that same thing, MN20, and maybe put Buddha too and Google that, then you'll get both the 19 and the 20. Yeah. But we have time maybe for one comment, maybe two questions or comments before the children come in. Your own thoughts about what I've said, your own learnings from watching your own mind. Yeah, sort of stuff, Shannon, Shannon right back here. Thank you. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I have a question about um, if you have a very critical, judgmental mind, because um, that's where, for me, there's a lot of challenge, um, definitely with the, with the outside world, but I would say even more so with myself. So that moment where, you know, 
yeah, you're discerning the thoughts that are skillful and not so skillful. And then it's really hard for me to get out of the mode of like, I I get frustrated very easily. (laughs) And I know that that comes from the judgment because I'm just like, okay, I've been here before. Why am I still stuck in this, you know? And so it's very hard for me then to just be sort of like, okay, it's all right. Like have compassion for yourself, like be patient. I just am wondering, you know, did the Buddha have any thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like what to do when, cause then that can become like another pattern actually. Yeah. Yeah. This is, there are a lot of those chicken and egg things. And I think it really comes down to, and this is really heartbreaking, but it seems true, which is it's, it's really hard for a human being to, to sort of wake up to become more skillful unless one way or another they can touch into some safety and some release and and we can bump into that any number of ways so we didn't let's just say have parents who really loved us at least in moments unconditionally because they themselves were hurt or broken or whatever but maybe we run into a friend and this really goes back to what I was saying, it, it matters what we pay attention to. So like to really do that discernment that Shannon was talking about, we need to look at the mind from a place of safety and release. Because if we're already, if the heart is already on unshaky ground, already not feeling good, then the heart doesn't have the clarity to discern what's skillful or unskillful or to discern what to do about it. So this is the thing. We have to start from a place of relative, it won't be perfect, release, relative safety, relative love. And so that we have to be creative, like upon paying attention to what, do I tap into some deeper place of safety and love? What do I need to keep in mind some sense of goodness. Now, I'll give you an example. I was raised as a Catholic, and uh, I had a relatively healthy, seems, from what I can tell, experience being raised in the Catholic Church. It was a pretty progressive place in the early 60s when I was a young person. And I had a lot of sort of mentors, you know, nuns and priests and lay people in the church that seemed like they were really good, loving people. And one of the imprints I got, like probably by three or four, is that somebody loved me. You know, it was just like told to me. So it was just sort of an imprint. Like that the sort of background of reality is God's love. Now, I grew out of that just because it didn't answer all my questions, you know, by the time I was 14, 15. And so my mind just kept going, looking for answers to the questions that I had. But that imprint was really important about that there is something good. Because in this work of looking at our mind, the insight depends on having a temporary, uh, stable place to observe the mind. Now in Buddhist terms, that stability comes because we trust the teachings of the Buddha, and then later it comes because we've developed real um, samatha is the word concentration or 
stability of mind, unification of mind, we have a peaceful set. And from that place of inner calm or inner peace, then we do the wisdom practice of looking, like you were saying, Shannon, at the activity of your mind. So generally speaking, the way the Buddha taught is, first, in terms of meditation, we really emphasize getting to a peaceful place in our meditation practice. And then with that peaceful place, we start developing wisdom. We use the tranquility, that inner peace, then to observe the mind and all its not-so-skillful and skillful activities. And then we can really see more clearly. So whether you really put a lot of uh, effort into stabilizing awareness and touching into deeper calm and peace, so you can do this wisdom practice, or you draw on your own real experience of love and safety and well-being that you've experienced in your lives, and use it. You're kind of using it to stabilize your heart so you can take a fresher, more balanced look at what's going on in the moment. And this is like using the past skillfully. We tend to be more interested in the disturbing stuff, but we can cultivate a way of drawing on the skillful stuff from the past. But the kids are here, so let's let them in. Thanks for your comment, Shannon. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.